everyone wants the same thing. We all want to be happy, healthy, safe. We want not to be ripped off. And I think that really unifies us. And I think trans communication can definitely bridge that sort of polarization. All right, Fred, what is happening this week? This week we're chatting with Michelle from Lab Muffin, and she has a channel that goes into the science behind the beauty industry. Explain simply. Excellent. Let's get right into it. Let's get into it. All right, we're back at Credit Generation. This week we're joined by Michelle from Lab Muffin. G'day, Michelle. Hi. Hey, um, what is Lab Muffin? Yeah, so um, my name is <laughs> Michelle. Um, I'm from Lab Muffin Beauty Science. It is a channel that talks about the science behind beauty products in a way that hopefully anyone can understand. That is probably the most concise <laughs> uh, wrap-up of a channel I think we've ever heard. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's my, that's my like five second elevator pitch. I can go to 15 seconds if we're stuck in the lift for a bit longer, if we're going like four floors. So the four floor version is like, um, I did a PhD in chemistry. Um, I also do a lot of science teaching. And so I found that a lot of people were asking me questions about how different beauty products worked. And so I thought I'd make a channel about it. Well, that's interesting. So many creators we talk to, especially um, how to or explainer creators talk about that from a point of view, if people had asked them questions repeatedly and they got almost so tired of answering the questions, they decided to make a, a YouTube channel based on that and that's how they all started. So is, is that effectively how you got started? You just thought this, people are asking me a lot of questions, I just need to put this online? Yeah, so that was definitely partly it. Um, I was in a bunch of Facebook groups, mostly about nail polish at the time and now I never do my nails, but that's how it started. Um, it was like a group of, I think about 30 women and people would just start asking questions and I became the go-to person to answer questions. And I sort of got tired of copy pasting and I was like, I could scale this up. Um, more people could find out about it. That's actually how I started my blog. Um, so back at the time I was a PhD student and when you finish a chemistry PhD, there's like a number of paths you can take. Um, academia, obviously you can go into patent law, you can go into consulting, and there's also science communication, which is sort of like this very vague one that people don't really talk about. Um, but it's basically science journalism, science documentaries, that sort of thing. Um, it's not a huge industry in Australia and it's hard to get into. And um, the pay is not that great unless you really make it big. So the advice was always you should start a blog or some sort of platform to use as your portfolio. So I started my blog thinking, you know, maybe this could be useful in a career sense, but also then I can paste this into all the Facebook chats. Right. And did you actually ever want to go down the, you know, hardcore chemistry route? I think I kind of realized a few years into my PhD that maybe it's not really for me. Um, there was actually a number of incidents that led to that. Um, the biggest one was probably someone um, got in a big lab accident. Um, there was a big fire. There was a care flight helicopter. He, um, he basically accidentally set himself on fire, mm. um, almost set the whole building on fire. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was at that point that I realized I love chemistry, but not enough to die. Wow. That's intense. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that, yep. That's fair enough. Um, and when you're like, oh, I'm guessing with the, the science communicate, like, like this chemistry science communication type route that you're heading down i'm guessing like youtuber wasn't part of that mix at that time no not really um this was back in 2011 um youtube back then was sort of like the place where you upload cat videos 
And I don't think anyone really thought of it as a place where you could really, you know, make a career. And um, after I finished my PhD, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I liked science communication. I realized it wasn't really a, like, very stable career path. So I started going to science education as well. And I joined a private tutoring company. And it just so happened at the time that um, Veritasium, um, the science YouTuber, he was working there and he was just about to leave because his YouTube was taking off. So this is now fast forwarding to 2014. Um, and so that was when I was like, hmm, maybe there is something there. So I think I'm very slow. I'm very slow at like jumping on trends and stuff. So yeah, 2014, the seeds were being planted and I eventually did my blog um, and then after teaching for a whole bunch, I realized I couldn't really convey things very well in text compared to teaching in a classroom. And so another four years later, that's when I started my YouTube channel. So the YouTube channel grew out of the blog. Um, in between, I also started on Instagram because everyone was like, go on Instagram to promote your blog. Again, I was a bit slow on the uptake. That was building momentum. And then I was like, well, maybe I'll start YouTube as well. Super cool. And when you were going down this route, did you also see that, like, you you would have seen, and clearly you're a fan of the beauty industry and the beauty space, like you're in a, a very niche group of people who are talking about nail polish on a Facebook group, like, that's not just makeup, that's like, you know, a very specific area of that. But did you see that there was like a, a gap there that, it, like, someone wasn't talking about the products and the the space from a scientific perspective or a, a, a legitimate scientific perspective, I guess. Yeah. So I think traditionally, obviously beauty is a very female dominated space. Um, my audience is about 90% female, 10% male. And I think it's generally like that across the board. Um, but a lot of the people in the top part of the beauty industry is male. It's like, yeah, down the bottom, it's 90% female. By the time you get up to the top, it's about 90% male. And a lot of these are like um, rather old males who have a bit of an antiquated view of what women want. And so traditionally for a long time, beauty advertising, beauty marketing, all of this was based on the assumption that women don't care about what actually works. P women don't care about science. They just want, you know, pretty things. And obviously that's completely untrue. Um, a lot of women, including me, like do want to know what actually works. We don't want to pay for crap. And yeah, so I think my target market was really people like myself who are frustrated. And it isn't just, you know, mega nerds like me who are into this. Like there are also a lot of people who are, I mean, I think everyone wants to know what actually works for anything. And this was just missing. I think it's missing in a lot of areas, to be honest. Um, science also traditionally hasn't really invested much in communicating to people about what actually works and how the whole process works. And I think we've actually seen this a lot during the pandemic as well. Um, there's been a massive up, uptick in science communicators who are just freelancing um, making TikTok videos in their own time about how vaccines work and why people should get vaccinated. Um, so yeah, there is definitely this giant gap there. And I think it exists in a lot of places. Um, beauty in particular, I think most women will end up using beauty products in their lifetime. I mean, I think even 
every man uses a beauty product. Like you use shower gel, you use shaving cream, um, you use deodorant. And, <laughs> well, yeah, so I think it's old assumption. Um, <laughs> in theory, <laughs> on average, the average guy. Yes. Um, so yeah, I think it's pretty universal that people want to know what works, and beauty is like a particularly. Um, big catch-all space yeah uh, you know the interesting i guess there's a couple of really interesting things about the beauty industry especially on youtube um it's obviously one of the biggest spaces it's super popular and you know we've talked to creators like you know cat williams for who's who did very well in that space but got really tired of it they, they thought they find it very very taxing uh very anxiety provoking um you know and it, it the idea of self-image is very problematic. How have you found the space, generally speaking, from your perspective, um, coming at it from a doctor's perspective? Yeah, so I think I definitely see that a lot. Um, I think part of it is the focus on image. And, I mean, there is this trope where the beauty industry has always just been trying to prey on people's insecurities because that's what lets them sell more products. Um, if you don't see a problem, then you're not going to invest. At some point, if you want to sell more products, you have to start inventing problems. Um, and some of this, like you can see this a lot. There's things like um, a new one is tech neck. Um, it's this new condition that they've invented where like if you look down at your phone a lot, you get neck wrinkles and mm. that requires you to do a whole bunch of things to your neck. Um, <laughs> so I can definitely see where people are coming from there. Sorry, just one, one, one second. Do you think that's a real thing? People get tech neck? I don't think so. Well, I mean, so it's this crease here right. um, on your neck. <laughs> um, I mean, it exists. I don't think it's a problem, though. Um, I don't think, I think it's perfectly normal to have, you know, creases in your skin because skin is skin. Mm. But, yeah, like, there is a lot of pathologizing of, things that are completely normal to sell product. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of creators in the beauty space do get this feeling that they are just perpetuating this problem by participating in advertising on their platform. Um, and it is something that I do struggle a little bit with, but I think I have it a little bit easier than a lot of other creators because I bring in that sort of expertise angle where I can debunk things. And also I think once you get to a certain size, you get this luxury of choice about what you do and don't market. You can really be choosy and picky about what collaborations you take on. Like, I, I guess, you know, you've pointed it out. There's so much make-believe science maybe is, I don't know if that's the right term or, or not, but you know, like, and you say it like, um, you get to a certain size and you can pick or choose the collaborations you want to, the, the, the messages you want to put out. How do like how does the average consumer, other than tuning into your channel, like how how is the average consumer or creator expected to determine what is fact or fiction, particularly in the beauty space where you say like you know made up made up um, problems and then probably made up well clearly made up solutions. Um, like I think that's fascinating. How how, how how does how does one decide that or find that in this world of so much misinformation? I guess the easy version is to look for experts and look at what experts say. 
Um, the problem there is, of course, a lot of experts do actually fall into um, a lot of these traps. Like there are a lot of dermatologists out there promoting tech neck and like, you know, light from your computer screen is aging you and stuff like that when the science doesn't support it at all. So I think for the average consumer, the easiest way is to find a whole bunch of experts and see what they all tend to say, like go with the majority opinion of experts. Um, the longer term approach would be to develop critical thinking skills. So really learn how to analyze um, conflicts of interest and what makes a reliable source. Um, but yeah, I think at some point there's just so much information out there. It's impossible to sift through everything yourself. So I think you do end up having to rely on, yeah, majority opinion of experts. I was, my wife and I were watching a TV show the other day and my wife is a, um, a criminal prosecutor and we were watching a, a show which had a, a legal element to it. And I could just see her sitting in the corner fuming and just getting so annoyed because the process was so wrong and like there was like almost like he felt like with misinformation given for that for the sake of drama or to add to the to the story which you know you understand from a tv show point of view but when you watch stuff that other creators make in the beauty industry that's really wrong i mean they're not just it's not like drama this is actual they're giving information that is wrong do you sit there just cringing and thinking i need to stop this well, I think that's actually one of the nice things about having my channel. Um, I have an outlet to vent. Um, so I get a bit less angry and I get a bit more like constructive. Um, like how can I debunk this in a way that is constructive, that helps people, that's effective and that doesn't, you know, offend people too much and make them feel too bad if it's not really their fault they got sucked into it. Mm. Um, so that does make me feel a lot better. And yeah, this, I think um, another thing that helped me create my channel was just, you know, the urge to argue with people. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, and what's, what is the maybe single worst thing you've seen from beauty YouTubers that was so wrong that it was just shocking? I think beauty YouTubers, I think they generally don't tend to be too bad um, because I think a lot of us follow each other and like, I think I've been around enough that people do tend to look at my information, um, the bigger YouTubers anyway in the skincare space. Um, but I think the worst ones are when doctors promote things and they're obviously bad. Mm. So there are a few doctors out there who are promoting that, um, like sunscreens cause cancer, for example. Um, and that gets me very angry. It gets a lot of doctors very angry as well. Um, and I think, yeah, it's just the lure of, um, cash from the pseudoscience so what's the biggest piece of bullshit product then from the beauty industry like not you know the creators uh, you know what's the other than technic um and your computer screen is is aging you what's the what is there is there one that you can call out and you're like man this is bullshit i think the biggest thing at the moment overall is clean beauty so there's mm. this concept that um, companies are all putting toxic ingredients and in products. Um, and that's just not true. Like, um, the idea behind clean beauty is there are a whole bunch of brands that are saying they contain no nasties, no, and then they have a list of different chemicals they don't contain, like no parabens, no sulfates, no, um, no aluminium, things like that. Um, the truth is 
everything is toxic for you at the correct dose and if it's administered in a particular way. So for example, if you inhale 15 liters of water, you die. Um, but water we know is also fine for us if we drink it in small amounts. Um, so a lot of these companies who are saying they don't contain particular ingredients, they're demonizing ingredients that other products use in safe amounts. And the problem with this is, unfortunately, the beauty industry is very consumer-led. If people want something, they will make it for them. So if people are demanding, let's say, for example, no parabens. Parabens are preservatives and products that have been used for a really long time. They've been used since the 1950s in small amounts, and it's because they're really effective at keeping bacteria and mold in your products under control. Bacteria and mold grow in beauty products really well if there's nothing to control them because it's like the perfect food for bacteria. So parabens work really well. They were everywhere. And then suddenly someone decided parabens aren't good. Um, it was based on a number of very flawed scientific studies. And so a whole bunch of beauty products started saying we don't contain parabens. We're going to use alternative preservatives. The problem is these new preservatives don't work as well. So there's been a lot more incidences of mold. Um, because they don't work as well, they need to be used in larger amounts. And a lot of these are actually very allergenic. So one of the replacements for parabens is something called MI. And I think the allergy incidence is something like 10%. So like something like 10 or 20% of people are allergic to it. And so basically because of clean beauty, because of this ignorance of how the science works, um, the whole industry is going from something that was very safe to something that causes itching and rashes in 10 to 20% of people. So I think this is one of the more harmful types of pseudoscience. Wow. I, I don't know how else you'd explain it better to people. It's such, it can be a very complicated area. And I think I saw this one uh, on a channel where people complaining about vaccines and what goes into them and you don't know. And, and this person said, oh, they were giving a demonstration of like another chemical compound. They broke it down. There was tons of like chemical names in there. And people were like, oh, no, I'd never take this either. And it, I think they just broke down the chemical breakup of orange juice, something like that, something really straightforward. But people looked at it and it looked so scary that they got even more scared and they were thinking, oh, I'd never, I'd never consume this. But just people just don't know. And they tend to live within these echo chambers, right, of other people telling them or giving them information and then they just perpetuate and it just keeps moving forward and forward. And it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard thing. So do you think that creators like yourself have a key role in sort of demystifying that and trying to get people on the right path? I think so. Um, I think part of the reason why we have this role is actually just because the government and industry, they haven't really been investing in science communication for a long time. I think it's always been undervalued. And I think in the last few years, there's been a big turnaround. So I've been approached by very large multinational companies to give them um, advice on how to communicate science properly because they're seeing these effects. They're seeing that they have to stop using these extremely beneficial things um, in favor of things that are just not going to work for people. Um, they're starting to see issues. Finally, like um, I think also the government is starting to see issues with people being scared of vaccines, um, especially with the current pandemic it's having massive financial impacts on entire countries. So I think, yeah, we do have a role, but I think the reason we have this role is because of a larger scale failure. 
Yeah, it, it really is fascinating, the idea of obviously vaccines and how they're explained. And if we had maybe better science explainers, maybe this wouldn't have been as big an issue. Um, so it does highlight that, doesn't it? And maybe it creates a whole new generation of, of you know, more creators or content makers who are going to help better explain how these how these things happen. But it'll probably set up a whole bunch of other people who are going to polarize others as well and viewers because they'll be giving their own opinions which will be wrong. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's always challenging communicating the science because if you communicate the science, it always takes longer and it's always more complicated than sort of like the easy route where you just say, look for words you can't pronounce, avoid those. <laughs> Is that a thing? Um, yeah, so if you're being evidence-based, you kind of are at a disadvantage. Um, but I think that is part of the challenge. And I think there are lots of science communicators out there, um, who have come up in the last few years who are very talented and they know how to, um, communicate things in a way that people can understand. And they, I think a really important element in a good science communicator is really empathy, um, mm. being able to see where people are coming from and reaching out to them. And I think that has a massive role in reducing polarization as well. Um, I think deep down, everyone wants the same thing. We all want to be happy, healthy, safe. Um, we want not to be ripped off. And I think, yeah, that really unifies us. And I think, yeah, science communication can definitely bridge that sort of polarization. At the moment, obviously, it's, it's left up to people like, you know, influencers and YouTubers to do this off their own back, right? They've got to put together the channels and get the right information. Do you ever think it'll be something that will become like society will invest in more like proper communicators who are proper explainers who really can understand and explain concepts? I definitely hope so. Um, I think optimistically, I hope this pandemic has made everyone realize how important it is. Um, realistically, it is always difficult to get um, people to invest in things that don't give them a direct return on investment. But yeah, hopefully this has been like one giant um, demonstration of value. Do you think it's more lucrative and, and easier then to be on the other side of the fence where it's taking the easier route and that's why it's more common? I think it is because it's... Um, it is very easy to sell people on emotions rather than trying to like get them to ignore part of their emotions. Um, and I think it's a lot faster to make that sort of content. But at the same time, I am very lucky in that I have a niche that is pretty hard to break into unless you have all of this educational background. Um, so yeah, on the one hand, um, there's a lot less competition, but on the other hand, I have to do a lot more work. So to make a YouTube video, it takes me about 40 hours. Um, whereas I think if I didn't have to do all this research, I could probably bust them out in like a quarter of the time. That's a, a lot of, a lot of effort into a video too, in terms of the research. Um, yeah. Wow. All right. So I, I guess given that, what would you then say are your sort of top tips for people who want to set up explainer channels who want to, you know, clearly convey ideas in their videos? I think my top tip is probably to practice um, and get feedback. So a lot of um, science communicators who are on social media and on YouTube 
um, a lot of them have teaching backgrounds and I think that has been one of the biggest um, training grounds for me. So at the Tudor College, I was teaching classes of 15 students. Um, there were three-hour lectures. Um, you kind of just had to wing a three-hour lecture, which is challenging the first few times, but after a while, you suddenly become amazing at public speaking. You just can stand up and do things. Um, so I think that's a really good training ground. So get as much teaching experience as you can. If you can't do that, then try explaining things to your friends, your family, um, your dog, if you, you're in isolation. Um, and try to get as much feedback as you can, and then you end up adjusting. I think also it is very creative, so don't be afraid to try new things, um, experiment, especially if you don't have much of an audience yet. So don't be sad that you have a small audience. See it as a good opportunity to mess up a whole bunch of times before um, you get good. Um, really just do it. Um, don't spend ages trying to give yourself excuses not to do it because that's what really stopped me at the start. Um, that's also why I have the name Lab Muffin because I actually couldn't think up a name for ages. It was months. And then I was like, you know what? I just need to pick a name and start doing it. And then I never thought up a better name. So maybe don't do that. Okay. <laughs> maybe think of a better it. name. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I like it too. It's a really good name. It is amazing for search engine optimization, but um, explaining it is always a bit of a pain. Um, yeah, just do it. Try it. Um, try not to be too angry. <laughs> it's very easy to get frustrated, I think, because um, growing an audience, on top of that, you are doing all this extra work, I think, compared to a lot of other types of content creation. But yeah, I guess also try to find a community to support you. Um, I've definitely seen a lot of science-based content creators burn out because there is this extra workload. Um, but I've personally found it a lot easier since I found other science-based creators who I can collaborate with, who I can complain to, um, who I can send the posts that I get angry about on social media and then we can complain about it in our private group so it doesn't all leak out everywhere. <laughs> Very helpful. Actually, we had another creator mention that as well. They have a, a, a group of creators that they talk to, I think it was in the art sphere, um, about, you know, things that upset them and then they, they vent you know, between that little group rather than to everybody else. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a, a chat about, you know, comments and managing comments and hateful comments because Ant got sent out <laughs> a comment by, uh, by someone about um, his photo and we just sort of unpacked that and we talked about, you know, all the different things that creators get uh, told and what they have to deal with. Um, but I guess when it comes to the beauty industry, there must be a lot of very interesting commentary in, in you know, in, in the body of your, of your videos. And how do you deal with that? Like, how do you want, how do you deal with stuff that's blatantly angry and two, how do you deal with stuff that's blatantly wrong when they're saying it? Um, so when there's stuff that's angry, um, I actually don't get too bothered by that. Um, I think as a woman on the internet, you just tend to get lots of comments about your appearance. It's just, people just feel the right to comment on that. Um, but I think because I'm a bit older, like I'm in my mid thirties, I think if I was in my early twenties, I would just be destroyed by it. But I think because I am, a, I started putting my face out there at a later age, I was a bit more secure in my appearance by that point. So it doesn't bother me too much. Um, I have heard that once you get bigger, the sheer volume still ends up bothering you. 
Um, and I've heard that other creators just get someone else to deal with that. They just get automatic filters on there um, just to catch as much as they can before they actually see it. Um, in terms of people being blatantly wrong, um, again, that doesn't bother me too much. When I make my content, I try to anticipate that already just from all the years of arguing on Facebook and um, writing blog posts and Instagram posts. I've kind of gotten used to working out what is likely to be um, like an objection that people have and trying to address that before. So do that in the video. Um, I think it's called pre-bunking rather than debunking. So you anticipate what the arguments are and then you explain them so you don't mm. have to deal with them later. Um, again, it's always easier to do it in the first thing you post rather than having to reply to 15 separate comments saying the same thing. Um, sometimes though, I think the comments that do actually keep me up at night are where I am possibly actually wrong and they are right. And I have to work out how to firstly work out if I'm wrong or not, and then undo the damage I've done. Um, those ones are the ones that keep me up at night. I've gotten a lot better at those. So, um, I think the best way to deal with that is just to be very honest about what you are and aren't certain about. So, um, yeah, just being upfront about, look, the science isn't settled on this. This could be completely wrong in the next three weeks if people start researching it. But at the moment, with the evidence, this is the best of our knowledge. And look, I mean, the other thing I, I sort of wanted to ask about as well, um, in terms of the beauty industry, you know, the, there is a lot of talk about how much money can be made by creators in the beauty industry. And we've seen some pretty amazing stories. I guess from your point of view, you, you come from it from an explainer point of view and you have to have a certain level of objectivity. So does that mean you can't take on certain things like bigger brand deals, like a brand comes to you and say, Hey, we want to give you X amount of money to promote the product. How do you, how do you deal with those kind of things? Because obviously that would limit um, monetization options for you as well. Yeah. And on top of that, um, because I, it takes me so long to make a video, I can't space out my monetization as well. Mm. Um, so in the beauty space, most sponsorships, most sponsorships are product based. So we still get the things like Skillshare and VPNs and stuff like that, but it's a lot rarer. Most of the time it is like, can you promote this particular product for us? Or can you review this product? And um, with reviews, people expect a certain amount of objectivity. So if every single review of yours is sponsored, then people stop trusting you. So you kind of need to, um, even though the money is bigger, you are, they are really paying for like three or four videos worth of space. Um, so there's that consideration. With my content, um, my personal litmus test is if someone can't possibly buy this product, like if they live in Antarctica and it just doesn't ship to them, will they still get value out of my video? Um, mm. So I try to make videos that are still very educational. Um, most of the time now, I'm lucky that I can be choosy about my sponsorship. So I tend to choose products that I've been using for a long time without sponsorship, um, products that I really believe in. And conveniently, um, most brands have realized that people care about science now. So they're happy for me to talk about the science behind their product in a very objective way. And then like mention their product at the end. Oh yeah, this, this is one example of a product that has this particular, um, ingredient in it. So yeah, that lets me keep a certain amount of, um, independence. Right. And 
do you feel then there's enough um, financially in it for you to keep making these videos and, and building the channel up going forward? Definitely. So what I've kind of done is um, I've really diversified my income sources. And I think it's easier because um, I started with a blog rather than on YouTube. So my income isn't really just sponsorships. Um, I've got like a lot of little wedges. I don't think any type of income is more than about one third. Um, so yeah, I think that's really important as well, being able to diversify because you don't know when the algorithm will suddenly like hate your content for some particular reason. Like it just suddenly starts filtering out the word, I don't know, cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think it is quite good. And I think being, um, having an expertise as well is a big advantage. So, um, I do a bit of consulting as well on the side and yeah, so I think it's really important for creators in general to try to diversify their income sources where possible, because then you have a lot more security. Absolutely. And we say that all the time to creators, you know, don't depend on one source of revenue, particularly if it's, you know, ad revenue, you want to split that out a bit and um, look, it sounds very reasonable. Um, and your approach sounds amazing. And I think we need more, you know, science explainers. We need more people to do it well um, so that people don't live within these echo chambers and at least they listen to diverse points of view. I mean, that's my personal wish, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but at least we're hopefully on the right path with creators like yourself. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, Sorry, I just want to riff on that for a second because you did mention you were doing three-hour lectures as as part of an education, you know, as an educator, as a teacher. You're on YouTube creating like more succinct explainer educational science videos like are you shaping the future of how this type of information should be shared and like regardless of the educational placement or institution whether that's like a public facing um youtube channel or like you know is this gonna is this how universities and schools and high school etc like, like you know take this approach to teaching I think it's been happening for quite a while. So I know that a lot of teachers have been using YouTube videos in their teaching um, for quite a while. Um, so Hank Green um, and all his science videos. Um, I on, I think, I feel like I know more teachers that use them in the, as part of their lesson than not now. Um, so obviously there's still a lot of teaching to be done because I think... Um, the role of a teacher is really as a mediator of information, not just someone who gives them information, but helping um, learners interact with the information. Um, but yeah, I think video content um, has really made it a lot easier for people to learn. Well, on that point, and I think we actually have run out of time. Ah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Fred, Fred always loves to cut us off. No, but that's, that's fair. I think we've covered some awesome ground. I th hope we get more science explainers, not just in the beauty space, but everything. Fred, that's Fred's dream for the world is just science explainers for everything and everyone. But Michelle from Lab Muffin, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you. Fred's going to start listing off now all the things that he thinks should have a science explainer channel. Go. <laughs> Oh, you have no idea. It would make my life so much easier to have proper explainers, you know. But uh, how do airplanes take off? 
how to airplane yeah. land. Well, that was that was one thing I, I spent a lot of time researching. Was like not just how to airplanes fly, but researching navigation and things like that. And there were so many different types of explanations that I I got to the point where I just picked like three people I thought were pretty decent, and I just went down the rabbit hole with them. And then just tested those theories. If they worked, great. And if they didn't, I moved on to something else. But uh, very dangerous testing those theories in the air. Yeah, obviously <laughs> not in real life. But uh, <laughs> yeah, on, on, on a simulator, I tested them to see how it went. But yes, thanks, Michelle. Michelle, thanks so much. We'll uh, hopefully chat to you soon. Yeah. Create a generation. Look on the mic.